Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the RT Machine Podcast, Episode 9. We are going to be talking about sanders today. We have uh, different types of sanders we're going to go over, applications and maintenance and different sandpapers. Speaking of which, this episode... Uh, well, this episode we're going to start on a theme. We're going to do a Machine of the Week each podcast. And this week we're going to feature a DMC 1350 heavy-duty forehead wide belt sander. It's a pretty good-looking piece. We just put a new feed belt on it. First head motor's got 60 horsepower. The second head's got 30. Third head's got 25, driven by an inverter. And the fourth head's 20 horsepower, driven by an inverter. It's a 53-inch wide piece. So, pretty good pretty good size unit. Three, All right, so anybody out there? Three look? drums and a segmented pad. Yep. Yeah, good machine for somebody that might be doing some uh, cabinet doors or uh, entry doors, things like that, where they, they need that segmented pad and have the wide capacity for them. Yep. Be able to remove some material with that one. Yeah. Uh, DMC makes a nice sander too. It's a good quality, good quality piece. We work on a lot of those. Nice. So what we thought we'd do is maybe start at the bottom of entry level and uh, work our way up through. Kind of seems to be the theme lately. And uh, basically, a drum sander that can be from that hobbyist and uh, up through uh, just about any shop working with that. And uh, we'll go into wide belt sanders and stroke sanders and oscillating spindle sanders. We have uh, brush style, uh, lineal style sander for higher speed applications. So, um, let it off to Ryan. A lot of people don't know Ryan, our salesman, one of the best sander techs in the country before he got into into wow really uh, that's it yeah getting some praise there i don't know about all that that's the line i've been using so you gotta go with it (laughs) (laughs) somebody's full of shit (laughs) that's uh no we had a used to focus on sanders quite a bit before coming to the sales team but uh i mean Brian started talking out about a uh, molding sand or not molding sander, a drum sander. Um, if somebody's not real familiar with a drum sander, typically it is found in most hobbyist shops. It's a much cheaper, much lighter duty uh, machine. And the to get your sandpaper on there, you're actually taking a strip and starting to wrap it around an actual drum. So with that comes some issues if you don't put your paper on correctly and get some high spots, low spots. But if you're buying lumber straight from a mill um, and just need to try to get something flattened, um, it will help the homeowner, the hobbyist, do a lot of that at a much cheaper cost. Um, Than sitting there with a hand sander. Yeah. Do they glue the paper on? I, I don't know much about those at all because we just don't deal with them very much here. But So you can glue them on. Um, a lot of times there is, like I've seen some that actually get riveted in. Yep. Um, you see some that have, there's like a clamping mechanism. So you kind of clamp one end, you wrap it around, and then you clamp the other end in. Um, it, it just kind of def- depends on the vintage of the machine yep. and who made it. I've so. seen duct tape wrapped around each end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Send it. Uh, the struggle with those is uh, it's time consuming to change the the paper. So yep. you know if you, you in a production setting where you need to be able to change over quickly and things, you know that's just not where a drum sander excels. But 
often they're a very small footprint machine and great to put in somebody's garage or, yeah. or uh, you know, just out of the way. So you run into some accuracy issues and different things that way. You're very, very limited on the amount of stock removal you can take off. It's very easy to actually burn your sandpaper um, if you try to take too much material off with it because you're not that paper is no time to cool down till it's going back again. So then it's heating up and it's actually burning the wood onto the paper and making it stick because anytime we're sanding, we're actually creating heat and dissipating that heat's a huge process within any application where we're sanding. Um, so it is. So definitely a very low, low production application. Nice. You see a lot of edge sanders that have burn marks on them. That's right along the table. Uh, which an edge sander is basically a belt sander turned on its side so that you can do the edges of just say doors and d other edge work. Um, so the one way they get around that is actually making it an oscillating edge sander where the paper is running up and down the platen about an inch, two inches at some cases. So you're using more of the paper than just one inch of your door. Which in turn is helping with the cooling as well. Yep. yep. So the always... edge sanders we do see in a lot of shops, they still have a very good purpose today, especially if you're, you know, you're gluing up a five-piece door and you need to clean up the edges of the doors and, and things like that. Yep. So. A lot of customers are actually fitting their doors um, with their edge sanders as they're making them uh, an eighth of an inch oversized all, all the way around, and then they'll work, fit it to each cabinet space. Yeah. Yeah. Edge sanders are really good at taking the tip of your thumb off too, grinding that down. So. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> Knuckle biters. That's where you need the uh, leather welding gloves with yeah. those small parts, <laughs> which I guess blends right into the oscillating sander as well with the spindle sander Yeah, into that same. Doing thing. decorative work. Yeah. yeah. In, inside radiuses and mm -hmm. different things, small parts. Yeah. They also has a, a good place in, in today's production shop where you might be doing doing some cleanup work on carvings mm -hmm. or other things like that. So, Got a little noise going on in the background there from the shop. <laughs> <laughs> so really, the next, the next big step would be going into the wide belt sander. Yeah. And uh, that's a wide array of items that are on the wide belt sander such a wide subject and that's uh so one of the big applications where you start to see wide belts really start to come in play are your uh cabinet doors i mean i think that's a good spot to kind of start when we start breaking it down a wide belt or we're just going to be going down one rabbit hole after another um yeah so they start at your basic single head 37 inch wide you know, wide belt sander, and we can go all the way up to, you know, seven, eight heads, top, bottom, you know, the whole nine yards. Yep. I'd say almost every small shop has an application where a small single head sander, wide belt sander would be useful. Yeah. You know? That's, um, see a lot of them starting out around 24 inches wide. Some, some lines they're actually making so that there's no end plate where that would connect each side of the belt to the frame um, if you have something that's over like 24 inches you could do send one half of it through turn it around send the other half through um, typically we don't see many of them in 
a shop setting just because of inaccuracies. Um, when people think about sanding, a lot of times they want it to be like every other tool in their shop where it's a cutter blade. Sandpaper is not made as a cutter. That's if you can envision a mountaintop and you're looking at the mountains and you see high points, that's basically how sandpaper looks on a microscopic level. So once, depending on what you're cutting, whether you're cutting a really hard wood or a little or a soft wood, a hard wood is actually going to come out thicker than a soft wood will. That's, this can vary from the heartwood of one board, which might be on one side of a six inch board to uh, the outer edge, which is slightly harder. So we could start varying within tolerances. So, so if you have sapwood in a, in a board, that's where you're. Yep, your sapwood, your heartwood, your um, name of the outer edge. Yeah, draw a blank there. Well, moisture content plays a big, big role in that as well. Yep. You know, uh, uh, when you're you have a higher moisture content, you're typically going to take off less product than yep. if you're than if you were drier. Yep. So you know, you also have more come, sticking. Right. So that that can. You know, when you're you're looking at the edge of a board that may be kiln dried versus the center of it, you know you're you're going to have have different different stock removal, and and some of that gets down to a, a very small level. I mean, we're talking thousandths of an inch. Yep. You know, very very tiny. A lot of these high end sanders, they're guaranteeing anywhere plus or minus four or five thousandths. Um, so I mean, that's pretty tight when you're talking about a lot of different variables. How they sprayed the grid onto the paper, whether you're using paper versus cloth. Um, so there's a lot more that goes in it than just punching in three quarters of an inch on your display and running. Well, and we, we see a lot of issues sometimes with, with operators as well, not, not quite understanding how much stock removal, you know, each their machine is, each grid is capable of yep. and, you know, proper inspection of your parts going into the machine is, is just huge because, you know, one sending one board through that's too thick can cause catastrophic damage to a sander if you're not if you're not careful. So uh, proper training to an operator, you know, it seems like such a simple process putting a board through a sander, but you really have to have somebody that's watching what they're doing to protect your investment of that machine. Yep. So that's uh, well, it's like you just said about putting one board in, even if you didn't crash it, but you put a board in that was too thick, a lot good chances you either burnt your paper. So now you have a streak on your wide belt that is the grit's pretty much gone. So the rest of the paper's fine. And then they start working back across. And then you have front half of your board because a lot of times we, if possible, depending on the application we're working in, is to actually start the board on a little bit of an angle through the machine. Not much, just a little so that we can use up more of the belt more evenly. Um, but when doing this, what could happen is if somebody burnt a spot in the belt or there's a line in the belt from something going in that was too thick, that uh, it could possibly put, uh, well, it wouldn't remove any material on the front part of it because all of the grit's gone, but by the time he makes it to the back end of the board across the edge of the machine, uh, you're, you have fine grit. So now the front end of the board is thinner than the back end. So uh, backing up a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, wide belt sanders are, there are so many different variations. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, so the primary things you're looking at is you have a contact drum in there. Yep. So, 
a lot of times, depending on the sander and the orientation, you know, if you're if you're really going to calibrate to where a steel drum comes in handy, where you have that consistency, it's, it's uh, you're not going to depress a a steel drum the same way you depress a rubber drum. Yep. And then you have rubber drums, which you have different durometers. So depending on well, let's run on the steel drum just a little bit further. Yeah. Break that down a little bit more. Sure. So your steel drum, your main job with a steel drum is to flatten slash calibrate a board you can remove a lot of material and they cool down a lot quicker because anytime we start sanding we create heat so that steel drum doesn't hold the heat as much as a rubber or another material so so what's the downfall of the steel drum then versus a rubber we get a lot of chatter right you will always have chatter out of any kind of drum whether it's steel rubber um, I say any steel or rubber, your two main drum styles. Right. Um, and then we can kind of go on to the rubber drum. So they start with a hard rubber drum. Right. So you're getting less chatter than your steel drum, yep. but you are, you know, hard rubber, you're still able to do some calibrating with. So in a multi-head sander, a lot of times you'll have a steel drum first and then, you know, some type of a hard or medium durometer rubber drum behind that. Yep. Um, you know, and so as the rubber gets softer, your chatter gets less, but your capability to calibrate also goes down as well. So as you go through a machine or go through a process, you know, your board has to be more flat, the softer the drum you're going through. Mm. So not um, quite as forgiving, um, but then flatness, know, once you get to that really soft rubber, whatever that board's going in as. And when I'm saying soft, we're probably talking 30, 20, 30 drummer, which is really, really soft. Right. It's like when not, you push on it with your thumb, you can see it deflect. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 60 so. to 80 is a pretty common starting point for a lot of drums. Six, 70 being a mid. Right. So. Yeah, I've seen some 90, 95 durometer, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then. You know, just depending on, you know, different manufacturers will spec machines differently. And you can actually order custom durometer on your sanders, you know. If you're really getting into the weeds of it, you know, you've, there's some guys that will say, I want, you know, this durometer for the first head, this durometer for the second head. But uh, we don't see that very often that there are some guys that really know what they're getting into when you get down to that. Well, and that gets side. into different veneers, finishes, yeah, um, coatings and stuff that are going down and they're doing a polished finish. Right. So when you get into like a veneer, that's where a very soft drum comes in handy because you want that drum to kind of contour to the part more than you want to calibrate. You know? well, so. I've really, truly only seen one customer ever run a drum for a true veneer successfully. Yeah. And when we are talking about running veneers, it's a whole different animal within itself because some of them veneers, I mean, you're starting to be able to see through them. Oh, yeah. And uh, I forget the drometer on it, but it was a like a two and a half foot drum diameter on the drum itself. <laughs> and the rubber, I mean, you could just, it was like a sponge almost. Yeah. But if they put anything in that was slightly too thick, it was going to tear the drum up. They had multiple drums sitting on the shelf because of air. Yeah. It's, it's just not a very... Uh, these days, you're not seeing that as much. You're with, not with the technology, with the segmented pads. You're not really sanding veneers too much with yep. a with a drum. But 
before the segmented pads, the technology came on. That was how they were doing that. That's but, how you had to do it. But the veneers were much thicker back then. Now, you know, the veneers you're seeing today, you know, they're significantly thinner, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, you have less margin of error to, to destroy the veneer yep. in the sanding process. That's um, which kind of takes us into our pads after we get done with our drums. We start going to what I call a pad, or uh, different manufacturers have different names from it. You for might hear platin, platins, yeah. the graphite, the yeah, um, platinum. platinum. <laughs> Some people call it platinum because <laughs> they don't know that the word's platinum. Platinum. Hey, that's just our woodworking industry. Yeah, and, and Microsoft Word doesn't know that it's platin either, so <laughs> it'll change it to platinum. <sighs> so we're, I say, we start with you know the typical stationary platin that you know you're. You would see on a solid wood machine. Yep. So. A lot of times that's starting out as there's a couple different backers that we use. Either we'll use a solid aluminum plate that will slide in there, typically for a solid platen. Um, sometimes they'll use steel, but a lot of times it's aluminum. Um, and then a piece of uh, sheet felt, which is a calibrated piece of felt. It's not a felt that you just go buy at the craft store very stealthy <laughs> that's the so the felts you're buying at the craft store for just random projects are not calibrated they're not the craft stores aren't worried whether the density of the felt is consistent the whole way through and what happens is if we get a slightly softer piece at one end or the other is that will completely throw our tolerances off as we're trying to hold plus or minus four thousands but the felt we're using has eight thousandths of deflection on one end there's no way we're ever going to hold plus or minus four with that being done even though we're not trying to calibrate with the felt it will uh mess up the tolerances at the end of it so i think what we we should back up and talk about why we're using the platen or i'm getting a little ahead of myself yeah so talk about why you're using that versus a drum and what the benefits are yeah so Pretty much the only reason to ever use a platen is to remove the chatter we just made from the board. So any drum we use will create chatter. The only way to really get away from that is to use one of them two-foot drums that we talked about or a platen. Right. So, and they're, they're basically accomplishing the same thing where if you had a two-foot diameter drum, you're just increasing the surface area where you're contacting the part. Yep. So... The, the pad does that in a much smaller footprint, essentially. Yes, much more efficient. Right. And it allows you to run shorter parts. You know, if you have a two-foot two diameter drum, your, hold down, your hold downs can't be as close to the bottom dead center of that drum. So um, one other thing you'll see, you know, you're getting rid of that chatter. And we're also elongating the scratch pattern. So it kind of helps the scratch pattern blend and in, blend into the grain of the wood. Yep. So where you might, you might be finishing at, let's just say 150, you know, if you were to sand across the grain of with 150, you're going to see it. And when you're sanding with the grain, obviously you're, you're blending that you're, you're in. Yep. So you're, you're kind of tricking somebody's eye to say they don't see the scratches in the wood and making them a little bit longer helps that blend into the grain. It blends much easier. Yep. Right. So when you're going to a staining application or something like that, it really helps helps the aesthetically on the part. So and you can help eliminate some of that palm sanding afterwards. Yep. So that you had mentioned um, 
getting rid of the elongated scratches um, for uh, like the platen creates. So we get a nice long consecutive scratch out of any platen. The one thing some of these machines are doing on the last head as well is they're actually putting a chevron belt on. Yep. What that's doing is that's breaking up the continuous scratch pattern and making it look uh, more natural, like the grain would be. Yes. Because the grain on, if you look at a piece of wood, it never goes perfectly straight down the piece of wood. Correct. It's always deviating. So if you have this perfectly straight line running down the board, it it looks out of place. <laughs> yep. you know? So that's breaking that scratch up and letting it restart, restart, yep. restart the whole way down the board. And it doesn't give you that long grainy look as well which is even better than for going to finishing without touching it up with the palm sander yeah now the chevron that you're going to see on a much higher higher end machine typically yep. you're not going to see that on a in your typical small cabinet shop yep. you know, you're going to see that in in more of a high production setting where you know palm sanding hours are multiplied in the thousands for some, the product that they're running so absolutely you get a lot more maintenance it's another belt you have to track, another belt you have to purchase. Yep. And, and maintain. The, the Chevron belts are expensive too. They get expensive real quick. Yep. So, what? how many typical heads would be in when you're using a Chevron belt with a four head unit? I mean, I've seen them the whole way down to like two heads where you're running a drum, it, parts are already coming to you pretty well, good to go, and you're running either a drum and then a segmented head or you're just running two segmented heads. Yeah. So you, a lot of times that'll be a secondary sanding application where the part's already been sanded to be calibrated, and now it's coming back to be finished. Yep. Um, and so the lot, whole thing a, is a, a completion of... Yeah, yeah. But I typically see them more in, you know, four or five, six head machines where, you know, they're, they're going down the line, you know. Yeah, you normally do see them in more of a finishing line. Right. Or some sort of line. Yeah. So they can't afford the time to pull the board out to palm sand or do anything. Right. Well, and the, the whole goal with those lines are get rid of all the manual labor. Yep. You know, it's expensive and it's inconsistent is right. the big thing. You know, the whole point of that production is have a good consistent product. You want the same thing coming out the end every single time. So when you have a manual process, that's hard to achieve. Yeah. So, um, so on your typical small cabinet shop, what you'll see is, you know, if you have a two or three head machine, you'll have like a steel drum, rubber drum, and then you'll have what's called a combination head where you have a small rubber drum with a solid pad behind it. So you can, you can use that third head with the drum. You can use it with the plat pad. A lot of times I'll set it up where you're just very lightly touching with the drum and you're really hitting with the pad. You know, just depends on what the product is somebody's yep. doing. But How much somebody wants to take off. Yeah. Um, which I think that's a good point. You know, a lot of guys, the question always is how much material can I remove with this sander? You know, that's every install I've ever been at. Right. You know, I don't know if I've ever had one that says that hasn't asked that question. Yep. So, and so I was trying to find the chart here. I got a little cheat sheet, but I couldn't seem to find it before we started, but it, a lot of it depends on what you want to get out of the machine. That's what grits you're running, and it's not always up to the grit you're running. Sometimes we have to go down in a machine with horsepower to help get it into somebody's budget, right. and we just don't have enough horsepower within that machine to do what the grits are capable of doing. Right. So there's a few variables that, re that 
go off of stock removal. Yeah. So your feed speed is one. It's you a know. huge factor of it. Uh, the speed that your belts are running at. So a lot of times that's not adjustable on an entry-level machine or your typical cabinet shop machine. Uh, your paper grit, and then whether you're running paper or cloth, you know, uh, style of paper and then your species is also huge you know mm -hmm. obviously it's a lot easier to remove more material on pine than it is you know hickory or something like that so um so the rule of thumb that i always go off of when i'm especially if somebody doesn't have a lot of sanding experience a conservative number for stock removal would be one divided by the grit number so if you have 100 grit paper take one divided by 100 that gives you ten thousandths so 100 grit paper is typically capable of more than ten thousandths but, you know, that covers a lot of your applications to say, I'm not going to hurt my machine by running that, that stock removal number. It's a so, safe start. Yeah. A safe starting point. Yeah. And then until you get your setup dialed in and you do, you know, your paper manufacturer can make recommendations as well yeah. for stock removal and, and things like that. But it's The less you're taking off with that paper, the life of that belt goes up through the roof tremendously. It's not like if you take five thousandths off and then you change to taking ten thousandths off that your belt life should be cut in half it is a sliding scale it is like it goes down so it's to exponential yes. yeah it's yeah it's 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 not a straight line it's a curve it's a very and it and it goes really steep really quick on the, yep. the amount of less time you get with more stock removal so the, yeah and if you start throwing in you know species that are more oily like sapelli and mahogany and things like that it's Right. throws a big curve into it as well. Yeah, that's, that's We get along with a lot of the sandpaper companies out there, but when I was on the road working, I ran into the one where the guy was going into the shop, and it was a three-head machine. They were finishing at 120, and they were doing face frames and um, some doors through it. Well, they were running 100, 100, and then... 120 grit for their heads and i'm like well, why are we doing this because you know sometimes there are some good reasons why we're doing it they're like well this is what the sandpaper guy recommended and it was like Ugh. yeah they're like here look let's go down let's start at a 60 grit to do all of the calibrating work for you i said you're you're hardly ever going to wear a 60 grit out with the amount you're taking off. Especially in a glued up product like that, mm -hmm. when you're introducing glue into this, a rougher grit is going to be able to handle that glue much better than a fine grit. Yep. So. And then we, I said, okay, let's try to skip 80 and jump to 100 and see if you still like that finish. Because what will happen is sometimes if we're not removing enough with the next grit up, we'll still have a few scratches from the grit below. So we ran the 100, and it was like, they couldn't tell a difference. And then we finished at 120, and they're like, oh, we can't tell a difference. Well, their belt lice went through the roof. Yeah. And it wasn't good for the salesman selling paper, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, we... Did he meet you in the parking lot? <laughs> never met him. <laughs> well, that I think that brings up another question that customers always ask. You know, how, what can we jump? What can you go paper-wise? You know, if you sand at 60, can you go to 100 or, you know... Mm -hmm. And I think it's all, the, the general rule of thumb is like 40 to 50 in your grit. Not until you get to finishing where you're going up into the 220s, 320s, things like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's usually that you can – 60 to 100 is kind of a big jump. But then if you go 80 to 120, that's – 80 to 120 is a nice, nice jump. Yep. 120 to 150 is a nice jump. It, so. 
that conversation needs to be had with your finishing department. We need to test run belts. We need to have a sander tech out there to make sure the machine, we know what thicknesses are being removed on each head. Because some of these machines we're running have shoes in them. And once we set that shoe to a designated height, we're expecting the sanding belt to remove so much stock from the board so that the shoe behind it then is flush with the head and can then pass through the machine and our calibration's right. So when we start swapping grits in and out, we could be asking some really tall favors of some of these grits where we're trying to take too much material off and then we're not getting a true finish. Right. So it has to be a collaboration between somebody who can calibrate and make the sander do what it's meant to do and the finishing department that's a lot of times when we went in to do a calibrating thing, the sander operators and the supervisors of that area didn't even want to talk to me. They just sent me straight to finishing and say, get their approval. Yeah. So well, it's, it was it's, the best way to do it. Yeah. Well, there are so many things that a product will look great coming off a sander and then you hit it with stain and it just, it looks terrible, mm -hmm. you know, and there's things that you can't see until you put finish on it that, uh, you know, so it's, I think that's a great way to do it. Most small shops, the guy that's running the sander a lot of times is finishing the product too. So a lot of times yeah. in your smaller shops, that's how it is. But when you start yeah. moving into more of a production shop, the yep. guys that are doing the finishing, they have an eye and know what they're looking for. Okay. They can pick stuff out that you or me would never see, no. but the finisher, yeah, he saw it. Yeah. Well, that's what his job is. Yep. That's what they've got to do. So, um, so I think we, you talked about shoes a little bit, which I think is a huge thing. You know, basically the hold down system in a sander, in a wide belt sander is, is just as or even more important than the drums and everything else that you have going on. So Yeah, if you're it, not holding your boards and steady, you can't sand it properly. Yeah. So the, you know, the two most common you'd see is a shoe, which is a, a solid metal uh, plate for to simplify it right yep that goes right behind or right in front of the of the head and that's what holds your product down to keep it from lifting up into the sanding heads and yep. keep it against the feed mat to keep it feeding through so typically we're seeing shoes a lot more on heavy stock removal applications where there's more of a tendency for a board to want to kind of kick um or move around more often these are your shoes are going on a lot more heavier machines um, and when we start running solid wood applications where we're trying to hog a bunch of material off we need something beefy to really help hold that board down which hold down rolls do a good job but there's i don't know what the right word is to describe what a shoe does but it there's something about it that just helps hold it so nice and steady and flows through the machine so smoothly. Maybe you my, can... My opinion on it is your shoe can always get closer to the contact area of, of the drum. So, you know, the clo the closer you can get to the contact surface of that drum, the mm -hmm. better your hold down capability is. You know, if you have a roller, you're going to be whatever the diameter that or radius of that drum is. You have oh. to be at least that far away. So that might be... It can create more vibration. Exactly. So a shoe... A properly designed shoe might only be an inch from the contact area. Yep. So, so you got an inch from the front, inch from the back. So you eliminate you eliminate some of the chatter, you eliminate some of the snipe, 
you know, mm-hmm. things that you you see, especially then on short parts yep. where, you know, you don't have the room to hold it down what you would on a roller. Shoes are not nearly as forgiving, though, exactly. as a hold down roll. So your snipe and all of these other things that we've Derek mentioned um, can happen a lot. I don't want to say quicker, but it's more prevalent with a machine that's not being calibrated and maintained to the best of its ability. Right. And they're much more susceptible if somebody doesn't know what they're doing. They can get them way out of whack to the point where you can't even get a board to go yeah. through the machine. So they're, yeah. <laughs> they really take somebody who's trained. And, you know, I've seen operators that they can really dial a machine in well. Oh. But then I've also seen them where you don't want them to have a wrench in their hand even in the parking lot. So, <laughs> uh, But um, that's where a hold-down roll is a lot more forgiving in that they're spring-loaded typically and you know, there's a lot more margin for error and still get a good product out of it. That hold-down roll has that spring on it and it's actually floating up. So you have all of that extra forgiveness to be able to take care of that. Then also they're – you know, the, the downside of a shoe is you're dragging this solid piece of steel in, in against your board. So if there's an imperfection in your shoe, you know, there's a groove in it or anything, that, that can translate into your product. Yeah. So where the rollers, you can still ha- – the same thing can happen, but typically they're rubber-coated, they're rolling, and you're not going to you know, transpose you're not that. not impregnating your wood with any yeah, exactly. side. Yeah, so, you, you know, they both have their pros and cons, but I would say – most shops you're going to see, you know, especially, you know, the en- more entry-level machines, you're going to see a hold-down roll more than you're going to see a shoe, yeah. especially in the newer machines. You know, back in the day, you know, a lot of the older time savers and stuff, there was like nothing but shoes on those yep. machines. They were all shoed. It's, you don't hardly get into a shoe now until you get into a full production machine. Right. So, which a lot of these smaller shops, there is not much of a benefit for them to have any shoes. No. That's... Especially if you're just running the typical cabinet door, face frame, you know, what have you. That Honestly, the hold-down rolls do a great job, and you won't notice a a measurable difference in the product quality, I don't think. So, um, You gain a little bit of running into some small parts issues where customers want to send smaller parts through their machine where a shoe would be beneficial. But there's some ways we can get around that with butt feeding and I've seen people make sleds, you know, things like that. Different jigs. Yeah. Um, So that brings me to the question. It's always how short of a part can I run on the machine? You know, that's in the field. That's always what it is. So Mm. typically your rule of thumb is what is the distance between your your two hold down rolls? Your two last hold downs, the one in front, the one behind. What is that? Yep, and that you will need to be longer than that so that you always have the part being held down. As a tech or anybody in the industry, you can't hardly give a smaller spec than that. That is what we can guarantee, but as... In rea- reality, I've seen guys run super small parts, <laughs> but we've seen things where, you know, small parts can get jammed up and cause some damage and things so you can run them for a while yeah well and i think some of that comes back to the quality of your operator too and paying paying attention you know um somebody that's not watching what's going on can really really do some damage well and your other thing that you can get away with a lot more we talked about holding the part down is actually a vacuum bed yeah which will take a small part 
and it'll actually suck it fast to the bed. Um, and that helps us get smaller parts through the machine as well. Um, even with having that, a lot of times the hold down roll is still what we're going off of for guaranteed stock length that we can get through a machine. But it is a lot more forgiving if you start running smaller parts and you, we tend to find you can get a lot of, I mean, I've seen five by five squares go through machines that are supposed to be 14 yeah. inches. Well, and I think the vacuum bed helps you too, where you don't, you know, sometimes when you're getting a little aggressive and your product might slide, the vacuum bed helps prevent yep. some of that or it's not sliding on the feed mat. You know? Well, and the second, so we talked about the drums, the pads, and I guess we could kind of run into, now that we brought up the vacuum and part slipping, is like a segmented pad going into veneer. Yeah. That's... So there's a few styles of segmented pads. You know, you're, you're probably your most entry level would be like an air bladder segmented pad. Yep. Where, you know, you don't have a lot of independent control. It's more or less using an air bladder to kind of put pressure and it allows it to, to give, I guess you would yep. say. The bladder will actually kind of float over top of the board versus having a set point that it needs to go. Um, so that would be your most economical. It's your most economical. A lot of times what they'll do is you run a single board into the machine, and as that board gets to a set destination right underneath that pad, that air bladder will fill up, and that bladder will kind of come down onto the part, float across it, and then lift back up so that we don't round any of our front or back edges over of the board, where if we have that, vacuum bed we prevent any slippage till we get there because if that board loses its position within the machine you lose your accuracy you lose your accuracy you're probably going to start rounding edges over now now the downfall of that is you have no control on the sides of the product so you can still round over the side of your product but the leading and trailing edges you're going to eliminate some of that round over yeah which you're if you just run a standard platen typically your worst spots are your leading and trailing edges, but you still can round your other edges over. Um, so then you go to the independent segmented heads where they're individually fired. So you have two, really two main things. You have one with air cylinders and you have one with solenoids, I guess you would. Yep, you would call little uh, solenoids, yeah. Yeah. DC controlled solenoid packs that are... so. The air cylinders are more economical again, but you have a little bit less control. And in my mind, you know, down the road, they have a little more maintenance issues, you know, yep. um, just because you're chasing down air leaks, you're chasing down bad cylinders, bad valves, things like that. You got air cylinders and uh, valves all through that machine that are packed in there so tightly. I mean, so for instance, a 52 inch, let's just talk in 52 inch machines. We're probably looking at 110 yeah. little um, segments in there. And we do that up to three heads. We have a three-head machine that is full of segmented heads. I mean, we're talking over 300 little solenoids. Yeah. 300 little air cylinders. It's, it's a lot. So when you're talking about the individually fired, whether it's an air cylinder or it's uh, solenoids, the benefit is you can see exactly where that 
that board falls. So like, let's say you're doing a face frame, for example. Yep. It has sensors at the incoming side of the machine, and you can see where the all these things are starting and stopping. So these these pads are firing down and firing up exactly where they need to be to prevent roundover on any feature of the of the board. Absolutely. So um, right. now the downfall of the air cylinders is they're typically set to one pressure. You know, so you're not variable within within the controls. You're not varying on the edges of the product or things like that. It's just Correct. on or off. That's and. The one thing they will do with the air cylinders to give you a little more or a little less is either add a segment to either side of the outer edge of what it's supposed to be firing or remove one from the outer edge right? Um, to help with that edge pressure where the electronically fired units will, they may have up to three switches on one segment. So... There's three switches that will activate a one-inch square. That's, with that being said, once that machine, once that board gets under that segment in the sander, it'll give it a one, a two, or a three on how much pressure it's supposed to have. So it'll be 33%, 66%, or 100% of the pressure allotted to that segment, which then gives you much more control we can say well we're getting too much edge sanding let's back it off to maybe 75 percent for three segments on that edge right um so that, the electronic segmented pads are they're pretty far ahead on what they're doing with that yeah now that's where you can really get into to sand these thin veneers yeah. and you know i mean your applications are almost limitless on what you can do there yeah but, now you're talking about this is the most high end of of a you know of what you can put on a head more or less. Yep, and it's so. uh, you can't get much higher end than that. Um, the electronically controlled. What patterns. kind of what kind of costing are we talking about getting up into that? Oh geez, I mean. Well, so we had a we had a boot furring here, you know, a few years ago, a brand new one, and that was only a two head machine. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think you know that well that was. That was pre-COVID, I think. That was back when we. Yeah, were, the numbers was, aren't even relevant. That was back when we were a Styles dealer, but I would say that machine was about a hundred grand back then. So, but that was only a two-head, and it was only a forty-three-inch machine. So I'd say these days, you know, I don't know what we're getting in. I think you could start out with a segmented machine, very simple, running a little over a hundred. Yeah. Uh, you're not getting a ton of features. You're not getting electronic seg, electronic pad. You're getting an error head. Yeah. Which some of these airheads are actually really nice. Yeah. Um, are they firing the same way? They still have the, the segmented roller to sense where the part is? Or Yep. Yeah. They're still the segmented roller to the part. Now, they're, you, some of them will only do two switches per part to try to help debate whether they should fire the extra pad on the segment or whether they should try to eliminate half a segment. We got BK over here rolling around in his chair making noise. <laughs> <laughs> Digging in the fridge. Yeah. We promise They're, this is not beer. So they got, a, they got a drink fridge, but no beer in it. I don't, you know. <laughs> the beer's upstairs in my fridge. Oh. It doesn't help us down here. Yeah. And it's not the kind of beer you drink, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put some Miller Lite in there for you. I drink whatever beer is free, usually. <laughs> OP. 
yeah. other people's. Yeah. No, I'm a Miller Lite guy. <laughs> I've been trying to get Miller Lite to sponsor my water skiing, but they won't respond to my Instagram posts. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to have to make a video of uh, make a video with another beer and and do it, tag Miller Lite since they won't they won't sponsor. This episode maybe possibly sponsored by, by Miller Lite. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Back to Sanders. Back to Sanders. <laughs> Sliding into the brush style Sanders. Yeah. Well, I well, think so. Did we touch, you know, Wide Bell Sanders is like the, we could talk about that for hours probably. We could for a long time. I, I, I think even, we touched on the main points, but I wanted, the thing I wanted to talk about was major issues that we see in the field. Well, let's know. finish the last head first. Yeah, sure. Orbital. Well, I, there's also cross belts. Let's talk about orbitals. All right. So they could be the bane of your existence yeah. if they're not running right. Yes. That's for sure. But what a nightmare that can be. It doesn't matter what manufacturer. Essentially, they, they are designed to destroy themselves, more or less. <laughs> you have a big pad. If you think about an orbital hand sander, multiply that by 20, yep. you know, and now put it inside of a machine and try to keep everything balanced don't take a nick out of the pad because if one side gets a little lighter or heavier than the other side that's oh, yeah it's, it's completely out of balance and one side gets clogged up but when you talk about getting into finishing a, an orbital head can tremendously improve your product quality yep. coming out they are well worth it if you have the maintenance staff and the know-how to take care of them I don't think we need to say much more than that. It's, no. It's this I, industry's attempt to make it so you don't have to have half a dozen people standing around with hand orbit sanders. Yes. Right? Oh. It's when I was doing service work five years ago, they're starting to get a little better. And they've come a long way from years past. I mean, but it's still it's still a struggle. Yeah. Um, like I said, they're more or less designed to destroy themselves, you know, yep. because it's there's such a balance issue and you're putting this big, heavy thing out of out of balance, essentially. Yep. You know, it's it's uh, tough. Well, it's I mean, we work with time savers on their sanders and time savers. One thing that we kind of, I kind of realize that they're trying to do for their orbitals is always having a drum head within that machine. Because when we're going to an orbital sander, we're only trying to scuff the surface. We're not trying to remove any product. We're just trying to give it a you're different just, look. Yeah, you're just changing scratch patterns all you're doing. And if we're three, well, if we're five to six thousands over um, what we want the machine to be at, it can cause some serious stress with one that head. So what Time Saver is really pushing for to help save them heads is to put a drum first within that machine so that the tolerances going in there are always the same. I mean, you're coming because if your wood swells or the guy running the product before you through their other wide belt is half asleep yeah. and sends it in that's too thick and it's has paper that's wore out, so it's coming out of the machine thicker than what he has it set to. Yeah. It's going to your wide or your um, orbital and it's messing your pads up now. It's wearing them out a lot quicker. The so. one recommendation I would say is, you know, the time savers, I know with being a dealer, they have a rebuild program for these orbitals. And yep. so you want to keep two spares, one on the shelf and one at 
got time savers getting rebuilt that you can cycle them out because you know yeah. depending on how much time you're running you know you don't you don't really know what your life is going to be sometimes but i see some customers that every six months to 12 months are changing these heads out because the the bearings tend to fail you know just yeah. because they're the balancing issues and it's a hard problem to overcome yeah. but keeping parts on the shelf is the way that you overcome the downtime associated with it. Yeah. And they're typically, those heads are set up to come in and out really fast because they know that's what's going to happen with them. Yeah. So, but, but then that brings us to cross belts. So, uh, you don't really see that many of them out there in the field, but no, but where they're used, they're used pretty heavily and they're very important for certain applications. That's typically you're seeing a cross belt on, uh, veneer applications. Um, when people are taping their veneers together, going to um, and then laminating it onto a panel, they use a lot of tape, yeah. which at cross belt helps. It's so a cross belt is also a segmented pad as well. So there's a segmented pad within the cross belt. Um, it keeps you from having to manually remove this tape off of, off of the product, which can be super labor intensive. You know, depending on what you're product looks like nope so. i mean some of these guys i mean they're laminating a ton of panels up and they're running their machines day in and day out so to actually try to hand remove that it's that's a heck of a job yeah. and that cross belt's going across the board so it's actually trying to peel it away short ways whereas if you're just going to hit it with a wide belt you're going to hit it lengthwise and it you're, go you're going to clog your wide belt up with paper and glue from the tape versus going the other direction. One other application I've seen um, the cross belts used in was, and this goes back to the finishing guys. They wanted a certain kind of look where you're taking your wood fibers and you're knocking them off to the right. And then you're gonna knock them backwards and then you're gonna knock them the other way. So it's actually breaking them fibers that are standing up and you're if you take a wire and you bend it to the left bend it back bend it forward bend it back that wire is going to snap and become more brittle to give you a better finish so moving them wood fibers left right forward back is also a big advantage in getting a certain look it is such a i, I don't want to say a fussy look but it, it is a definitely a uh, quality thing that would be pushed from the finishing department. Yeah. Well, and that brings up the other topic of, you know, some of these higher end machines, you can reverse your drums, you know, and I, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, where, you know, rather than typical sander, you're always, you would call it conventionally cutting. So you're cutting against the product flow yep. where some of the sanders have the option where you can climb cut where you're going with the product flow. And that helps you to, like you said, break those, those break fibers. them fine fibers. Yeah. So, uh, you don't see it very often. No, that it is a very specialized. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that covers most of that as well as far as heads, but yeah, common issues is what we see in the field is I'd say 95% is calibration related. Yep. Things that we go out in the field for are, you know, out of calibration from side to side, you know, um, a huge thing is when you, you know, you have your spacers that you removed to be able to install your paper. Yep. Guys don't realize how much of a precision part that is. You yeah. know, you get dirt in between there. They drop it on the floor and get a dent in it. That is what's setting the side of that 
sander to height. That's what's locking. That's what everything is being locked off. Yeah, of. and referenced to. Yep. So keeping that clean and treating that like gold is is huge. I've had ones before where they'll take the front block and move it to the third block and they'll pull all the blocks out at once and then they're all mixed and matched. Yeah. No. So what we started doing was taking a can of spray paint Just and color coding you them. color coat, you spray the first head in the lock handle, another color for the second, another for the third. Yeah, it's a brand new machine, but it's worthless if it's off from side to side. Yeah. So. Um, so that's a huge thing that I see. Um, then hold down rolls, you know, people think that when the part's slipping, oh, I need to put more pressure on it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You know, too much pressure tends to be the biggest, like biggest cause of snipe. Part slipping. Well, you know, yeah, you do get snipe from that yeah. as well. Too. But part slipping, too much pressure on the yeah. part also. Yeah. That's what will happen with that is that part will actually run into the hold down roll. Yeah. And it can't get under it. Right. So there is, uh, especially when you're talking rolls, there's a certain, every machine's a little different, but there's a certain amount of deflection for that roll that you should be targeting yep. to, that you have enough pressure that the part will feed through, but not so much that you're depressing it down into the feed mat, yep. you know, cause that feed mat is rubber and you are going to push that part into the feed mat a little bit. Yep. That's so. where we kind of go into feed mats on a maintenance standpoint as well is these feed mats are a high quality rubber. So any rubber over time is going to start drying out a little bit. And there's no way to get around that. That's so typically what going back to calibration is once they start to dry out and start to wear a little, they might wear in the spots you're running more heavy. And there's just certain times you can't get away from running in certain spots more often. So what we do is typically at least once a year is to try to grind that feed mat. And if we do it once a year before it gets real hard, we're only taking maybe five to ten thousandths off of that feed mat at best. Right. Yeah. Just, if you wait too long, you've got to grind a lot more material off to get into that good, I'll call it wet rubber, you yep. know, where it's not that hard slick, you know. Yep. I've had people ask it, well, I found this spray that's supposed to be a rubber conditioner. And it's like I well, know see, it says see, the thing I don't like about that is now you're going to swell some of that, mm-hmm. that belt. So now you're never going to get that hundred percent consistent. So nope. the worst thing you could do is have a belt that's inconsistent on one, you know, in different areas, because now you're never going to get the machine calibrated. Correct. So it's the consistency within the machine is a huge, huge yeah. process. Um, so it is that's, if I had to make a recommendation is don't touch the feed mat. Yeah. Just don't but, touch it unless you're going to grind it and you know how to grind it properly. Just don't touch it. So I had one, one guy that we had a, a nick in his drum, you know, and you know, we, uh, we can grind drums in the machine. You know, typically mm-hmm. what we'll do is we'll, we'll glue sandpaper to a, uh, a board, like a piece of MDF, or, yep. you know, and we'll, We'll lower that drum down into that board to sand the drum to get it, get the imperfections out. But I had a guy that took a board and actually fed it through the machine. <laughs> I had one of them too. And uh, he, you know, I applaud his thinking because it did, it, it, in some ways it made sense, but the board was not the full width of the machine. It was only like <laughs> half the width. So he had a line going down the center of it. So I would, you know, my recommendation is there, some of this work is not really that difficult. 
But if you do it improperly, it can cause a lot of damage. So if you're ever to the point where you say, my drum needs the ground or my feed mat needs ground, have somebody like us come in and train you how to do it the first time. That way yeah. you get it done right. And we're happy to teach people how to do this stuff. You yeah. Know? Um, that's the training one. It's a huge thing. That's there's so many little nuances with Sanders because it's not a set dimension that you're cutting to. A lot of it's like, yeah, I've seen that before. That's that's going to be fine or no. We need to take a little more. And unless you're working on the sanders day in and day out, it's not a cutter blade. It's it's a little bit different of a beast to work on than I'd say sanding is more of an art than a science. There's a lot more art form to yeah. it. Because there's which there's sounds just, crazy, but try yeah. to work on one and you have everything set perfectly. Yeah. And then you're getting a snipe. And it's like well, all my gauges say it's set correctly, but well what you didn't realize is your gauge was sitting on a little piece of dust. Yeah. Now your hold down roll or your shoe isn't right on or your drums off a little. Yeah. So it's going back in and fine tuning and tweaking so that we can hold them tolerances that we promise. Yeah. I would say th that brings the other point is any machine in general, cleanliness is just key, mm -hmm. you know, keeping the machine clean, keeping the dirt out of it. And sanding is, is, a, is a never ending battle because you're just making dirt yeah. when you're, you're fine sanding. dust. Yeah. But that keeping the machine clean is going to is just going to help you tremendously. I had to throw yeah. that one in there. <laughs> Good old Tommy boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're not right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh I think we've covered most of the big big ticket items there. Well, wide belts are there's so many variations of them out there, and it's probably one of the most versatile machines you could have in your shop. As far as you know, I don't I don't know of any many shops that don't have an application for a, a wide belt sander. Even in a you know panel processing shop, you can have applications for them. Where if you're making a countertop and you need to sand the top before you lay it up and things like that. So, yeah, we actually had a you know in a production atmosphere coming off the edge banders, where we were running a high pressure laminate edge banding, yeah. and then uh, the tops came right out of the out of the edge banner and went right into the uh, wide belt sander and then went down the uh, spray tunnel, conveyor spray tunnel. <clears throat> or, you know, if you're, you know, you're making countertops and you're running wood moldings or something that you need to sand those moldings and you yep. know, there's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's endless there's, what, what you can do with them for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah and it comes back to that. Uh, we were talking about that story earlier. My guys took uh, <laughs> a belt blew apart, took out the sensor. And they put six belts on before they came and got me. Oh. They were all shredded. At how many dollars a piece? You right, know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're only $65 a piece. Yeah. Within 10 minutes. Yeah. So that kind of that kind of stuff can happen. It, uh, mm. You know, and it, it comes back to it. It's hard, it's hard to get good trained operators. And, you know, that's where I see a lot of guys, have, especially when you have a tech on site, get your operators, your maintenance guys there with, mm -hmm. with the tech, you know, you don't have to be right over their shoulder, but being around and, and asking questions is, is helpful. Yep. You know, um, we're in the shops every day and see all kinds of different things. You know, we might not have an answer for you, but chances are we probably have something that we've seen that could, could help, help your situation. So. It's interesting how you, I never really thought about how the guy running the wide belt sander 
his work is actually judged by somebody on the other side of the plant who's applying <laughs> the finish. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a crazy. I remember we used to go to demos at one of our manufacturers, and they would they would run the demo for the customer, and then the sales guy would take the cabinet door out the back of the machine, and he wouldn't even look at it. He would just hand it to the customer because he's like, it doesn't matter what I think. Yeah. I think it's it's such a subjective. That's very true. That's we're running the Stanza machine here, which is a brush sander, and first time i looked at it, i'm like oh looks sanded and I hand yeah. it to a customer and it's like one time you get it's like this thing's awesome like i don't even have to touch it afterwards we can go straight to paint or straight to stain <laughs> and the next one will pull it out and like eh, i want something different well you and, know you know different customers are doing different different products absolutely. you know different different quality levels or different you know the guy that's doing you know, super high-end, $100,000 kitchen, his standard is going to be way different than the guy that, you know, might be just doing a $10,000 painted kitchen, you yeah. know. So there's not to say one is right or wrong. It's just a different standard level, yep. you know. But those stands of machines, man, I, th I think they're a great bang for the buck. You know, we've been... We, they're impressive little machines. We don't keep them very long when we have them. I can mm -hmm. tell you that. We get them in, set them up for a demo, and it's gone like the next week. So it's uh, that medium to small cabinet shop right now is. I mean, they're. I feel they're heavy enough to run all day, pretty much every. Well, a single shift all day, every day. Yeah. Um, so they are, but the big guys, they're all running something similar. Yeah. And. Um, you know, it's always comes down to that. You weigh the, the return on the investment, you know, and a lot of the small shops don't need to run a machine like that all day, every day. They could run that machine one day a week and replace a guy doing it by hand all week, yep. you know. So that's, uh, you know, it's that, that always that weighing the, the dollar spent versus dollars returned. So. Yep. Yeah, that can be a fine line sometimes. You know, we were talking about the panel saws a little bit last week, and, you know, you, you have somebody that's on a sliding table saw trying to process 30 panels. Yeah. You know, at a You're day. working. You're yeah, working. You're working, and that, and that 30 panels would probably take a couple of days. You know, where in that same panel saw, that 30 panels could have taken 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah, depending on the machine. <clears throat> but now you always weigh your versatility of the machine, too. Where a, a sliding panel saw, you know, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that any cabinet shop needs a sliding panel sliding panel saw, sliding, sliding table saw, you know, there's just the amount of work that you can get done with it and the different things. Yeah. Like if you have the space and the budget, a sliding table saw is, you know, a must have, but you, it's hard to beat the productivity of a, a you know, the traditional beam saw, panel saw, you know, yeah. horizontal, mm -hmm. um, especially when you're getting into those shellings with rear load and stuff <laughs> you can, when you can, you can cut up a whole bunk in, in 45 minutes. That's, that's a whole other animal. It's moving. Yeah. Ryan, on the, on the uh, brush style sander, uh, how capable would that be to have something, instead of having a wide belt, just having that to somebody that's doing a little bit more finishing, but maybe a flexible drum on the front? What What is your take on that? So what are we finishing? Well, let's just say somebody's doing some wide work and things like that, that they're really not taking down a lot but they're they are doing a lot of finish work on doors so on doors if it's already coming from a wide belt um and it's flat we've flattened it it's really close to what we want it's going to put a scuff on it and give you a look 
but the any pretty much any brush sander out there is not meant to remove material from the product it's meant to scuff it up um so like a wide belt on a door you have your styles and rails and you're going to get cross grain on half your part well you're going to get cross grain um and what the brush machines are meant to do is to blend all that together and give you more of a randomized scratch pattern that doesn't show up in the finishing department. Um, if you're running like panel goods and you want to scuff it so that it can take glue or you want to scuff it so you can put paint on it. I mean, it really depends on the application of what we're getting to. But a lot of times you're going to be just as well off with like a single head wide belt that scuff the top of it and you can apply your glue. I mean, the brushes are meant to help get down and crack. So if it's just flat panel good, then the brushes aren't really going to help you. You're going to round edges over, which a lot of times on panel goods, you don't want that either. Right. So there are applications for it on panel goods, but for the yeah, most what about part doing like a fine, a f like a fine grit in between, you know, coats of finish. Yes. Yeah. Like That's that would be a great application. I think if you're, you're not really trying to take material, but you're just trying to scuff in between, in between finish coats. The only issue I have with that is rounding your front and your leading in your trail edge over. Now you could get away with that by butt feeding products so that it's not ever the brushes aren't flapping down over because the brush is meant to flap over something right right so that brush has to get up over that corner and then flatten out before it starts to sand so if we butter panels up yes that would be perfect we do run a lot of brush sanders on like these molding sanders yeah where if we round the edge over just a smidgen it doesn't matter they're going to cut the end off anyway they're going to cut it or yeah. everything else so it doesn't really matter but the one no. way you do get around that is you butt it up against yeah um so that does i mean even that stanza machine that's designed to go into we put two different grits on one for solid wood one for uh primer sealer yeah. so we're running 180 and then a 220 on the back side and we just reverse the brushes I think, I think really where that comes into you know today's market it is so hard to find labor you know and everybody Very is seeing tough. it and it if you're hand sanding, that is a fatiguing job to do all day, every day, you know? Yep. So if you can, even if you aren't replacing a guy, but you can keep him, you know, he want he want he's more willing to come into work every day. <laughs> like, it's a lot easier to stand and load parts into a machine and have machine sand it versus even if your production level is the same, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's challenging to find people and it costs you money to hire people, you know? Um, you know, we, even in our business, we, we have challenges, you know, hiring and retaining different times, you know, so you can put a cost at the savings of just being able to retain that same guy versus burning, turning over, you know, but without a doubt, you're going to get more production on a machine than you are doing things by hand. Typically. Yeah, absolutely. That's so. tip. Typically on that stanza, we're seeing anywhere from 70 to 90% of the hand sanding completely eliminated where sanding a door you might be from two to i've seen people go out to 10 12 minutes on a door yeah. in between primer coats i mean that's a little excessive but it does happen where we get up to like a 10 minute sand you know we might have to send it through that machine twice but all right now we're at 30 seconds yeah <laughs> so know. 
Well, and you're able to feed, you know, part after part. part. Yeah. 30 seconds, we have 20 doors through. <laughs> right. Well, maybe not that many, but, but yeah, we got I a lot of doors through. Yeah, that's. Yeah. yeah, and I had the one customer where they had a few different door profiles, and, you know, we found that, okay, three of the profiles had to go through actually three times. Yeah. But it was still a heck of a lot faster than. And it than comes down to hand. consistency, too. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Where, especially when you, if you get to a point where you have multiple people sanding, now to get those products across three people hand sanding to look exactly the same is, is almost impossible. Right. Um, you know, it, so a machine is going to be much more consistent, especially with a competent operator. Yeah. So. Um, well, in those brush style sanders, they're also doing them as a uh, lineal, linear molding. Yep. Yeah. So you're sanding the white wood for before it goes to a spray machine um, or a hand spray, but you can eliminate a lot of times the moldings. Depending on what they're running, a lot of the moldings you see in a house, they aren't sanded. But then you get into some of these high-end applications where they're getting hand sanded and they're really getting scrubbed down, yeah, um, smoothed out. Um, well, you can take on... some of the knife marks out a little bit or yep. blend, blend them. You're not going to totally remove them with a brush sander, but you can yep. blend them with it. It'd be more and, of a furniture-style molding. Yeah. Well, and if you look at you know coming off of a molder, you're going to get that shine to a part. Mm -hmm. And you know that's going to... That's going to affect the the wood's ability to take a finish, you know. So you need to get that shine off and open the grain up to allow. It to, if you're going to, especially you're going to stain, you know, mm -hmm. staining off of a just coming off of a molder is, you're never going to get a great looking product there. Or maybe you will if you get lucky, but you really need to sand to, yeah. to get it. But you're uh, not going to get what the stain was meant to do. Exactly. And you may get a product you like. Yeah. But it's not what the stain was meant to right. do. So you got to get that grain opened up and get rid of that, that shine that comes off of, you know, finishing off of a molder, that type of thing. Yeah. A lot of times, one thing that I think gets overlooked quite a bit, no matter whether you're on a wide belt or a brush, is what kind of grits you're running. Yeah. That um, a lot of times you see uh, the, so it's going to have a black coating to it typically. And that's going to be your silicon carbide, which is meant more, it works better for finishes, whether it's primer, sealer, um, it's a sharper grit. There's still as many grit points in it, but it's a sharper grit. It's a more fragile grit that once it starts to break down or wear down, it'll actually fracture off within microscopic level. It was actually fracture and then give yourself another sharp edge so that as that primer is actually getting sliced and cut versus the um, aluminum carbide, which is more of a rounded stone. It's not as sharp. Aluminum oxide, right? Aluminum oxide. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Silicon carbide. Silicon carbide. Aluminum what we're oxide. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. The aluminum oxide is our white wood. Right grit which is more of a round stone not round but it's more of a stony feature it's not a sharp glassy it's typically like a red color yes. yes and that's where you see that's the most common within the wood industry yeah, because exactly. i mean if you're sanding wood that grit's not fracturing it's not breaking down it lasts a little longer it's more of a dull cut right but you don't require such a sharp edge where a finish you need that sharp edge for the consistency Correct. But that comes down to you also need to keep that paper clean. Correct. Where, 
and that you know most sanders where you're doing finishing work you have a belt cleaning system in you know yeah, where with that where you're using an air blow to uh you know blow that that uh, any media that's sticking exactly exactly and that's that's super critical keeping the paper clean in any sanding application um and most times you know if you're just running an 80 grit aluminum oxide paper it's going to naturally just stay clean because the, yep. the the grain or the grit is so wide open but as you get into smaller grit sizes and you're getting into finishing that keeping the paper clean is what's going to keep you from burning product and and uh you know burning up paper as well yep so absolutely the other thing when we start talking about finishes versus just roughing the wood up and calibrating it is what kind of backer we're spraying that grit on whether we're using a paper back or a cloth back that's if you run a cloth paper just take a, your shirt for instance that piece of cotton you're wearing and you spray grit on it there is crevices within that cotton um, and that fabric that that grit's going to fall down into where if you take a piece of paper like a notebook paper it's very smooth it's very consistent and you go to spray uh, your grit down on that paper you're going to get a going to get a smooth consistent finish within the grit with as much as that grit can be consistent yeah so there it, it comes down to your application then right correct you know? so the cloth is much more durable it's right. gonna it's gonna tolerate more abuse typically longer lasting but you can run that till it blows apart. Yep. But the cost is much more for a cloth belt versus a paper belt. Um, but now, like you said, when you come down to consistency, when you get into finishing and things and fine grits, you're typically not going to see a cloth belt in that application. You're going to see a paper belt. Yep. In those, the, you know, when you get up into the, you know, 280, 320, 400 grit. Yeah. You know, so. If you're running a cloth belt after... I would say 120. It's pretty much worthless, but I've seen them up to 150. I've seen guys do them in 150. I've seen know. them in 150. I just, unless it's going to a secondary sanding. Yeah. Well, like other, I said, it depends on their application, you know. Yep. And, you know, there's certain guys, it's such an art form that there's certain guys that get this setup dialed in and they swear by things that the next guy who has another setup that works and, you know, they're, He's got good luck, and he'll have something completely opposite of another guy. So some of it really comes down to trial and error with your product. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's, sometimes there's, there's multiple right ways to do it. Yep. You know? so, and uh, I, I think some of it comes down to, you know, op I'm come, keep coming back to operator quality, but sometimes it's easier to just tell an operator every three hours, change this piece of – piece of sandpaper mm -hmm. than it is to have them read the paper and tell you if it's good or bad yep. and we see guys i think you were talking about that maybe <laughs> you know they're changing the paper whether it was used or not and, yep. and uh, that's just less reworks yeah so that's just a cost weighing the cost of how much does paper cost versus what are the potential defects costing yep. us so absolutely what about on the splice types and belt joining so there's a lot of different splices and different um, ways you can join them belts. And it's really going to depend on what you're doing again. That's, there's some more, there's some splices that are a little better, more consistently put together where they're overlapping the paper. 
but you're going to get more of a seam showing, which could transfer to your product. And then they go down to some places that are just, they're not very forgiving. If you put a product in that's too thick, um, it'll blow it apart at the splice. Um, if the guy is applying too much glue on the splice, that's it can show on the paper as well. Yeah. Um, actually, depending running, on how they're glued up too, you know, sometimes you'll see belts that are wider on one end than the other and you can't get them to track. Yep. So, you know, that comes down to, I've seen all the manufacturers have issues with it, but you know, different quality levels of paper, you'll see that. And, yeah. you know, there's a reason certain manufacturers are a little more, sometimes it's, sometimes it's because of their name, but typically they got their name because of a higher quality belt. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of other belt styles out there as well that um, we work with Time Savers, which also likes to work with 3M. Yeah. And Time Savers is very willing to test new products within their facility and really work to get a finish, a look yeah. for what you're yeah. going for. And 3M has been a big partner with yeah. them to do I'm that. I'm definitely a firm believer in 3M mm -hmm. products. You know, I can very rarely say we've had quality issues that I've seen from 3M. Yeah. So, and I don't, we don't even make any money on paper. I no, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Right. So they had some. I w Maybe was something out. cool we've never even seen before. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, there's out a. Uh, year and a half ago and we did went over to 3m for some paper training and different things and they have some just some wild grits out there that are designed for such different applications it's unreal it's mind-boggling all the different styles of grits they have so if you're worried about not getting the right finish or you're struggling with your finish talk to us maybe there's something there we can yeah. try to help with or get you in the right, get you in contact with the right people. Yeah, because cheap papers, a lot of times, it's not going to be the cheap way to go in the very end, really. Yeah, it it really again, it depends. Some some machines will tolerate a cheap paper that may be not, you know, consistently the same size on both ends and different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some products, you know, depending on the the level of quality that you're expecting, the cheap paper might be fine. Yep. Or you know, especially for the guy that you know is a one or two man shop. You know, if it's the owner running the machine, typically they're paying attention a little more and can get away with some of those those things where, you know, it's, like I said, there's not one size fits all for any, no, for any no, of this stuff. Um, but. Yeah, it kind of slides us into some uh, specialty sanders, you know, for different applications that uh, say like chair bottoms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, Eric might know more than either of us because I don't oh, think I've ever even worked on one. Throwing me under the bus. <laughs> old yeah, I don't even know who makes them anymore, to be honest. Um, a chair so, seat sander. Yeah, chair seat sander. We still That's find kind a of a few dying, of them. It's kind of a dying thing out there, you know. A lot yeah. of that, a lot of that furniture market isn't isn't being done in North America anymore. So. You got a lot of Chinese kids and Korean kids out there doing it. Yeah, they do it by hand a lot cheaper than we can. <laughs> yeah, so what, what we see in here quite often is the used good speed seat sanders. And I think people got away from those. Like there's, there's a company called HW Chair in Ohio that still has like four of them that they use on a daily basis. Um, but obviously that's their world. I think people got away from them because for each each different uh, butt profile that you have, you need to have a different 
jig for the sander to run off of. So it, it takes the, and the changeover is not exactly a quick process either, but there's a, there's a fault. There's a set of followers in there, almost like a segmented pad on a wide belt sander, just not, uh, not electronic <laughs> that follow along the profile of the jig. And that's what fires the belt down to sand into the, the profile of your butt. It's kind of looks like a cross belt yeah. coming across that as it goes across them jigs. Yeah, exactly. Um, so but, I think the new school method of doing that, you're seeing a lot more, you know, random orbital sanders on the end of a robot doing those types of products mm-hmm. these days because they're yeah. such more that's more, more versatile of a machine you yeah know? yeah depending on the level and the size of the shop for sure i mean some people are doing a little hw actually has a five axis machine and they're they're doing some of their sanding right on that oh yeah i've seen that as well that's um, that's not a cheap way to do it either but, negative uh, um, but it comes back to that consistency of you know you can get it done and a five axis machine is such a versatile thing that you know you might be using it for sanding today, but you could be doing some milling operation tomorrow and so many different things. So Definitely. But we're right back to operator training and, and maintenance. And yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, doing the profiles and different things that's um, some of these CNC sanders as well. It's actually taking just if you could picture like a um, snowboard with that curved lip. It's flat across the top, but it, the front of it's it has curves within the profile um putting that on a jig and then sending that into a sander is actually a real thing um time savers is doing one that has a it's all cnc controlled it's tracking the belt as it goes through and that heads you're programming it on a computer sending the profile out to the machine and you're setting your machine up and you're cutting away at the product um, and they're doing, they're selling a lot of them into the snowboard industry, the surfboard industry, um, and any of these decorative architectural millwork. We've seen some of them. Uh, so, yeah, that thing's pretty wild. That was sitting in the showroom when we went out there for training a couple months ago. Awesome. So, quite a few things we've touched on today. I think we've hit a little bit of everything on the sander topic. I think we went more detail into this than we have in any other, any other subject through here. I really got into the, got yeah. into the weeds a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I close. think it's one of those things that there's a lot of mystery for guys in their shops on how things are done and what what does what on sanders and mm-hmm. you know. So hopefully it opened opened some shed some light on different things that people have questions on. Yeah, it's the only machine that you don't cut to a specific yeah dimension i mean your molders you're cutting to a specific dimension your saws your shapers your anything i mean you're cutting with a blade saying this is where it's supposed to be a sanders thought of being exact but our tolerances are not a saw blade tolerance so so if you have questions on your application call us you know we can help you whether it's you're looking for a new machine and you need to know what you need to buy you're looking to tune up your old machine, get it running, you know, get it dialed in for the product. We can we can help you on that that stuff. So, yeah, you guys have. Uh, I think we're just last week. Top drawer, one of my customers. You guys are down there redoing. Yeah, this week. Yeah, Josh is out there right now. So, he's he's definitely getting into it this week. He's got he had half the machine apart. They had they were placing different bearings and stuff. One of the shafts was totally worn out, and they were there was a machine shop next door, so they took that over there to have that that repaired. So, uh, 
Yeah, that was one where they were really on the fence. You know, are we going to go into a new machine? And, you know, we evaluated it. And Yeah, it's it's always a challenge of when do you, when do you throw the machine out and start over? You know, and, and uh, especially these days when you have such hard lead times with different things, you know, sometimes it's the machine that's a new machine that's a lead time, or sometimes it's the parts to repair your old machine are a long lead time, and you're trying to figure out weigh the yeah. weigh the cost of everything of downtime and and purchasing and that type of stuff. That was what a three head machine. Uh, off, honestly, off the top of my head, I don't know. I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but Josh uh, is getting through it this week, so yeah, he. Uh, he was expecting to be there all week, and I think he's going to be done at the end of the day tomorrow. So he's actually ahead of schedule from oh, that's when, good. We, when we talked to him. But he's become a pretty damn versatile tech. He came to us mostly as a controls guy, right? And yeah. Well, that's the RT way. <laughs> we, you know, trial by fire and figure out whether you can do it or not. For but, sure. Uh, that's not necessarily true. We did have, do some pretty good, pretty good sander training here at the shop and different things, and you know, and. To, for our team especially, you know, we a machine is a machine, and once you learn the basic principles of a lot of things, you can really translate that across the board, you know. So if you have a guy such as Josh who is a good troubleshooter and can really look at something and say, oh, I think this is what the problem is and chase that down, that's that's really the key to a good service guy. you so, got to be able to understand how things work. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and at the core of it, especially a sander that doesn't have a segmented pad or anything on it, it's a pretty simple machine overall. Yep. You know, you've got a motor's turning a belt. You've got drums with bearings on them. You know, you've got you know, a, a conveyor essentially underneath of it. So it's uh, – it's just all the fine details in it to get it to work right is, is where the challenge ends up. So, Cool. What's our time looking like? We still got other? Oh, we got yeah. over an hour worth of recording, so. Wow, we're doing pretty Man, good. We didn't even get to Derek, this was an oddity for you actually to be in the plant. Oh, I, yeah. You've been oh, like on the, the road. I think, so I counted. I was home in the last uh, three, three, four months. I've been home like 16 days, I think. So between being on the road for work and then we uh, were always going somewhere on the weekends. So uh, between. You guys were just down in Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah. Down there for a water skiing tournament, barefoot, barefoot water skiing. So I, uh, I placed pretty well down there. I took first in the jump event and uh, sweet second in tricks and third in slalom. So it's um, not bad at all. No, no. I said new personal best and jump. So, um, no hard wipeouts this year. Uh, I did take a pretty good one, uh, uh, off the jump. I was hurting, hurting pretty good. Uh, at, uh, my cup like cut me between my legs actually. It'd be so hard. So, yeah. so that wasn't too fun. But, but the good thing is your neck broke your fall. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So you want to be a barefooter. Yeah. So you want to be a barefooter. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough, right? Right. <laughs> That's for no, sure. It's, it's uh, barefooting's fun because you don't have the opportunity to think of anything else while you're doing it. You know, if you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're going down. So it's nice break from work when you always got a ton of things going on you get out there on the water that's that's all that's going on going through your head especially when you're especially when your face smacks the water that's yeah. what's going through your head. well when you're skiing 45 mile an hour at a piece of fiberglass for, you know for the jump you know that's that's the only thing you can focus on right then <laughs> don't fall before the jump don't fall before the jump I have to so. post the jumping video to rt's instagram 
Yeah. Or just go yeah. to Derek's. Yeah. So, no, we spent – Florida was good. It's hot, but uh, – It's been a brutal year down there. Yeah. yeah. Even my brother's bitching about the heat down there. Yeah, he's he only lives about an hour from where we were down there. We were in we were outside of Winter Haven. Mm. But uh, – They're getting hammered today, man. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Hurricane coming through. Yeah. Dean's sister just flew home. She escaped the madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So – yeah, we've we've been traveling pretty pretty hard the last few months, and well, now our oldest daughter starts preschool, so we'll be home a little bit more. And I'm I'm looking forward to, forward to be at the shop a couple of days a week at least. So can appreciate home a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, especially after being in a camper for four months, the uh, our house feels huge. It's not even that big of a house, but it feels huge <laughs> after after being you know four of us and a dog in a in a fifth wheel. So. <laughs> Give it two weeks, you'll be itching for the road again. Like, yeah, okay, we got to get in the road. <laughs> I can't sit still, but no, it's been it's been a good productive summer. We we've stayed really busy. Unfortunately, you know, typically over the summer, service work slows down and different things. So uh, new installs typically slow down over the summer. So, but this year it's just been, uh, you know, balls to the wall. I mean, haven't had hardly any time to breathe, let alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, do anything extra so well now we're moving into hunting season here and how'd you guys do on the shoot last week you had the uh no comment <laughs> no comment <laughs> had a good time i think ryan was bragging here a little bit earlier <laughs> no, cody's just, not here to defend himself go no, ahead buddy i feel bad now i can't he can't defend himself it's, uh, <laughs> so uh there was four of you that shot yeah so, so myself eric dean and cody gotcha so who took first well that's that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> Who took last? Oh, it was I. My beginner's yeah. luck wore off. It was the fourth time I ever did that. Man, I suck. It's, well, you beat Cody the first time you did it, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Using his gun, the one that kept malfunctioning this weekend. <laughs> Cody had bad luck. So how many, was it a hundred bird shoot? Or it what? was a hundred bird birds. shoot. I think we shot 20, no, 17 different stations. Um, so we did. How'd you guys do as a team? Was there a team score or? They didn't. Re- they only gave out the uh, top score, I think. And yeah, they, they, they gave didn't read one it. and two. Mm-hmm. First was like two seventy five. No, I don't remember. Yeah, and there were like fifty guys there, so it was quite a few teams. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. There, there were people there with their, you know, fancy Benelli. Oh yeah. So it's the only one, one I remembered guy. actually was the guy who won personal best was ninety four out of a hundred. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he practices. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, he's a, a weekly shooter. Yeah, that's that's that takes a good good guy to to shoot yeah. that type of a score. I was happy with my fifty-seven. Oh, <laughs> well, you! I thought hey, you were in the sixties. Uh-uh. No. Wait, so you took first with a fifty-seven out of your group? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. It's, we had Mister Tactical Shotgun. I was with us say, <laughs> A Sega 12 gauge. <laughs> <laughs> what, with a pistol grip on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an AK. It's an AK styled right uh, shotgun. Oh no kidding! <laughs> oh, that's funny. You got we looked at card anyway. It looked like the militia coming in. <laughs> <laughs> it was a motley crew. That was the first time Dean ever shot skeet though, too. So yeah, well, that's pretty good. He was in the 50s. I got 51. Yep. Cody beat me by one. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. So there's going to be a rematch, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, the I, real I can't thing go is, to next year, so you can find somebody else to finish last uh, on your team. 
well, next year, if we have a little more of a heads up, we should put two teams together yeah. and maybe we can make it a, a gambling event, you know. Yeah, the guys, the service guys were trying to scramble, and then Kyle had something to do on Friday at an install, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I was on the road last yeah. week, but it was a little short notice. We only knew about it a week ahead of time. Yeah. I don't even know if it was a full week. It was the no, Friday, was Friday before. Day, yeah, right. Friday, you had to be right. submitted by Monday. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's cool. You guys had a good time. Yeah, but they are doing it next year. So, <laughs> next year. Well, with hunting season starting well, here now, now it's going to be the. Uh, Biggest buck, how many duck? Yeah. Goose starting, right? Goose on Friday morning, you're heading Goose out, right? On Friday, yeah. Goose and doves. Yeah. First hunting action of the year. I think this Friday I'm going to work on seeing how many beers I can kill. <laughs> <laughs> Dead soldiers. Especially, especially after this past week, work weekend, uh, working 16 hour days and stuff. So, yeah, you had a pretty crazy schedule. Yeah, but getting the job done, that's what we got to do. So, Cool. Yeah, other than that, it's been a good week. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah. yeah. Thanks um, for having me, guys. Stay tuned for the next episode, or is it an episode after for Joe Strauss? It's next week. Yep, yeah. that's next week. Yeah. Okay. Joe Strauss. I used to work for Joe Strauss, so. Should be a great episode. Yeah. So. Until good next time. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in. If you plan to attend the Wood Pro Expo in Lancaster, PA on October 12th and 13th, don't forget to stop by and say hello. We'll be in booth 503. Don't forget to support our buddies at Green Street Joinery by subscribing to the American Craftsman Podcast and their new YouTube channel, Today's Craftsman. Both links in the description of today's podcast. <laughs>